Welcome to Balanced Black Girl. My name is Les. I'm your host, and I appreciate you tuning in. Each month on the podcast, we're diving into a certain theme. In February, we talked about all things intimacy, and this month, our theme is book club. Each week, we're talking to Black authors on their book release dates to give you reading inspo all month long. Now, books have been a big part of Balanced Black Girl since the beginning. Shortly after starting this podcast in 2018, I hosted a book club to read Becoming by Michelle Obama, and that ended up being the best book club because a few months later, when she went on her Becoming book tour, we were invited to have a private book club with her. So shout out to my original Balanced Black Girl book club members in Seattle back in 2018 and 2019 because that was such an amazing experience. And honestly, after that, it's been a little hard to top. (laughs) Interest in the book club naturally increased and running it just became really stressful and a lot of pressure for me. And frankly, I completely folded. (laughs) I can handle pressure well in some instances, but when it comes to like event things, I fold. I've learned this about myself and book club sadly went away. That iteration. However, we now have an async book club in our Geneva community, Club Balanced, where we have monthly book club picks and a chat room to discuss the books that we're reading. So the book club has evolved quite a bit. We have a link to our Geneva group in the show notes. So join us there if you want to connect with other listeners and get some book inspo. Now, as I was planning podcast episodes, I noticed there were several incredible books written by people I admire dropping this month, March, 2023. And I thought, let's bring these authors to the podcast and celebrate their book launches with them in real time. Today, I'm joined by Clarkisha Kent to celebrate the launch of her new book, Fat Off, Fat On, A Big Bitch Manifesto. Clarkisha is a Nigerian-American writer, culture critic, former columnist, and author. Her writing has been featured in outlets like Entertainment Weekly, Essence, Paper, BET, HuffPost, MTV News, The Root, and more. She's also the creator of The Kent Test, which we talk about in this episode, a media litmus test designed to evaluate the quality of representation that exists for Black women and women of color in film and other media. So we talk about that test. We talk about the book, how she handled writing and recounting so many personal details of her life that were at times painful to recall, finding healing in humor, and of course, the importance of media literacy. So let's get into the episode. Clarkisha, welcome to Balance Black Girl and happy book launch day. Thank you for celebrating with us. Thank you for having me on. I am super excited. Um, This uh, book has been like a decade in the making, so it's kind of surreal that we're like finally here today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Your book, Fat Off, Fat On, A Big Bitch Manifesto, available today, at least the day this episode is being released. So I'm super honored that we're getting to talk to you on your book release day and that you're you're letting us celebrate this moment with you. I'm honored myself. I, I love talking <laughs> to um, people like you, um, people who are plugged in. Yeah, I just I'm just excited to see where this goes, honestly. Absolutely. All right. So with the book out in the world, how are you feeling? As you just mentioned, it's been a decade in the making. That is a big culmination. How are you feeling right now? So lots of relief. Um, 
especially because the last two years, three years now, right, have been very hectic. Um, you know, yeah. I was writing um, during the pandemic. I mean, it's still it's still mm-hmm. ongoing. You know, the government likes to gaslight us, but it's still a thing, obviously. But like, yeah, like peak, peak us being inside. You know, the work balance kind of shift, shifting. Like where we work, how we work, all like all those changes happening, and I was in the middle of all that, just writing. You know, it's not something I expected when I was picturing. You know, me writing my you know awesome first book, novel, whatever. I was like, oh, this is how I'm going to do it. This is what I'm going to be writing. This is how it's going to come out. And that none of that has been the case. <laughs> it's not necessarily <laughs> bad, but definitely like um, I definitely had to adjust. And kind of roll with the punches. Initially, the punches were very hard, you know, very disappointing. But you know, now that we're at the end of it, now that we're at book release day, you know, I'm just, I'm just glad we're here at this point. Yes, like yes. despite what has like happened. Definitely, definitely. It's, it sounds like one of those scenarios where it's like expectations versus reality, and the sometimes we have a big delta. <laughs> Between yeah, those two things. Exactly. It's exactly that, yeah. Yeah. So this month on the podcast, we're highlighting books by Black authors at the time that they're released. Uh, congratulations again. I'm really excited to kick off this series with you. So I would love to start off by talking about writing. You have been a writer for most of your life, you actually, in your book, introduce us to when you start writing and you referred to writing as your escape plan. What has your relationship with writing been like and how has it evolved over time? If I were to describe it, I would definitely say it's like a, a long-term partner. You know, there's going to be some ups and I hate saying ups and downs. It sounds so cliche. Let's rework that. <laughs> so, you know, in a long-term relationship, there's going to be times where it's very easy, very mm-hmm. easy going, easy flowing. You know, you're like, y'all are in sync. Everything's perfect. Like the telepathy is happening. You know, it's going to be awesome. Right. And then you're going to have like times and years where it's not as easy or mm-hmm. um, it's not as straightforward. Or maybe one of you is just not having a great time. Like maybe somebody lost a job. Somebody's sick. The you know universe decides to throw either one of you a curveball, and then the other one has to kind of pick up the slack, you know, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of how I look at my relationship with writing. You know, some years, great years for us. Other years, I was like, "Don't talk to me," like because <laughs> you know it's rough, um, especially like when you know, obviously, when the audience gets to like chapters in the book where I was like in California. And when I was like really trying to figure out how to pay certain bills and how that kind of got really dicey when it came to my relationship with writing. Yeah, it's very tough. Um, Now that we're in 2023, much better place. We're definitely on our good year. (laughs) One of our good years. Um, So I think that's what I would definitely call like, you know, like the long term partner. Like we in for the long haul. Definitely. That's a good analogy. And I appreciate you just given us a little more context to work with, with the ups and downs. Cause I know when I, when I hear somebody talk about a relationship and I hear someone say, Oh, we had ups and downs. I'm like, who cheated? I'm about to say somebody cheated. Cause that's what that, Probably that's what that became once. code for. Right? Probably more than once. <laughs> but there's well, so much more to these experiences than that. Yeah. So I was like, let me just, let me just rewind that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
absolutely. And writing a book of all things cannot be easy. I've never written a book, but I this month I'm talking to a lot of authors and the general consensus is that writing a book is not easy. And I don't think writing a book of any genre is easy, but memoirs specifically, I feel like must be their own flavor of difficult yes. and challenging from either remembering parts of your life, recalling and retelling things that are hard because you do recall some painful experiences and you kind of have to relive them. How has that process been for you? It's definitely rough because sometimes when the thing happens to you, you don't understand the significance of it until Mm -hmm. many, many moons later. Um, Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of that happen. You know, in past interviews I've had in like the last month, I was talking about how like me actually putting some of these events, traumatic events, right, unfortunately, on paper kind of helped me wrap up my own like origin story for myself. So it's one of those Mm -hmm. things that when I was little and these terrible things were happening, I'm like, why are they happening? Um, And then once I put it on paper, I was like, oh, okay, so I see the whole timeline here. Like yeah. now from like a more detached point of view, I was like, I see how every mm-hmm. single thing happened here. Do I appreciate that it happened? Not really. Cause it was still traumatic, right. but right. now I'm able to see like the entire, like the cause, the, the effect, what happened in between all of that. Um, and, you know, also gratefully at the time that I was writing this, you know, when I had a little bit more money to work with, I had a therapist based on a call. And then I had also a psychologist on call. Um, so basically when, um, there were weeks that I got into really dark subject matter, I'd be like, okay, I call my therapist. I'd be like, Hey girl, so do you have space for me this week, next week? What can we do? Um, cause you know, I covered a lost memory. I would like to, you know, deconstruct it with your, however else we can do it to make sure I don't get stuck on this memory. Yeah. Like I can process it. Mm-hmm. I can feel the feelings and then, you know, move on. Mm. Yeah, definitely. That sounds like an incredible resource to have while doing this type of work. And to recalling things that maybe happened in childhood or when you're younger as an adult is such an interesting experience because you have so much more context as an adult that you don't have as a kid. And so you're seeing it from an entirely different lens. Did you have that experience? Yeah, especially like at the beginning when I'm talking about my family and I'm like, because mm-hmm. you get to the, you know, the terrible, awful thing that happened, which I'll let the, you know, I'll let the audience read. But like you get there mm-hmm. and you're like, how did we get here? And then now mm-hmm. that I'm older, I'm like, okay, yeah, all right. These were the major players. This is why this happened. It was not fair that it happened, but this is what, you know, this is what all this led us to. And this is the fall that happened later. And that fallout informed my entire, you know, my entire life. Because I had mm-hmm. just arrived when, you know, the thing happened. So mm-hmm. it's definitely, it's definitely interesting, you know, while painful, I think that's why I always tell people that, it, you know, you have to reflect. Like, I do not, I do not fundamentally understand people who just don't do self-reflection. I'm like, that's not a thing you experience. That's crazy. Because, like, I'm doing that every, like, 48 hours, <laughs> personally. I'm just mm-hmm. like, okay. This is my life right now. That's crazy. You know, like I'm, I'm con- you know, I'm constantly ref- like reflecting, right? Yeah. So I just be like bewildered when people are like, oh yeah, that's not, I just have never done that before. And I'm like, 
So you just wow. vibes out here. You just raw dog in reality. <laughs> like you don't even, it just hasn't occurred to you that to maybe like think over it. Nope. Okay. Well, that's interesting. But yeah, a lot of it is um putting together pieces that you didn't have access to when you were younger, essentially. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I feel very similar to you that I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily replay things, you know, but like you said, just a reflection of like, okay, what just happened? Where am I at? Let's do a little pulse check with ourselves. And I've definitely encountered people who just don't. And in the grand scheme of things, I am grateful to be a little bit more reflective, but sometimes in the moment I'm like, I'm jealous because that looks yeah, nice me too. in this moment. You know, me too. Cause I'm like, it takes up Takes some headspace, takes some brain power. It requires right. energy, you know, to be able to sit there and be like, okay, you know, like, like let's say you just had an unpleasant interaction in traffic, like somebody cut you, something happened, and you're thinking like, okay, was you know, could I have handled that better? Was it my fault, or did they take me to a place where I reacted like my old self? Like you know, you start asking mm-hmm. some questions, and it requires so much energy. And yes, there is an element to overthinking. I am a chronic overthinker. I'm my own dad. I don't think that's going to change. But, um, you know, there's an element to that. So I, I too be, I also, I also am jealous. I'd be like, that doesn't, this is not something you experience crazy. I know. It looks, looks so peaceful. Right. <laughs> well, maybe for them, maybe not for people around them, but that's yeah. a different, that's a different thing. <laughs> Were there any, uh, you mentioned therapy, were there any other self-care practices that really supported you while you were going through the writing process? Excellent question. So um, I had to get to the point where I was like working at my desk because, you know, sometimes, especially, you know, these laptops, you could, you know, the laptops, right? You can go anywhere. I could write on the ceiling if I felt like doing it, right? But um, for the book, I was like, I cannot do that because then I'll create this unhealthy dynamic where I'm just like constantly writing and that's not good for anybody, even if you do like mm-hmm. writing, right? So mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to commit to actually using my desk, you know, but I'm also going to have like select hours of time to write. And let's say for some reason I'm off my schedule for the day. That's okay. It's not the end of the world. But now at this point, it's timed. Like, I can't go over, like, two hours. Yeah. Like, at, after two hours, I just got to get up. Whether I'm done for the day or I'm going to go take a break or something, I was like, I have to break this up. Because yeah. if I try to, you know, power through it, I'm really going to hate it. And if I hate mm-hmm. it, then editing it later is going to be hell, both for me and my editor. So I was like, I can't do that to either of us. So it's one of those things where I had to pace myself and also give myself boundaries. And then eventually when I got tired of like working at my desk, cause that happens too. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, let's go to the library. Let's, you know, have a change of scenery. Let's do that. I, I grew up on libraries. They were my safe space. So usually when I know I'm going to be doing some sort of tough project, whether it was writing the book or something else, that is where you'll find me because the atmosphere is very good. And, you know, I also personally feel good about it. Cause you know, I left the house active elsewhere but it's also like productive quotations, but still. I feel like the past few years specifically, we cannot like overemphasize how much leaving the house can just reset you mentally and just feels good when we yeah. haven't done it in a while. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've, I've definitely been up in the house because I'm like, listen, I'm disabled. I'm you know, compromised. I can't be out here willy nilly. That's just what it is. I've accepted that. Um, but, you know, there are little things that I can do to like, like you mentioned, reset my space. So I'm not like completely cooped up in the house. And the mm-hmm. library is one of them. Um, and, you know, thankfully, the library, you know, knows that we don't want to be on top of each other. Right. So right, <laughs> they right. have ample spaces where you can go. Um, those, but you know, those nice back rooms where they have the large like table and you can just go in there by yourself and write and be at peace. I love stuff like that. So, you know, if y'all listening, support your local library. Okay. Yes. Support you because they need money. Okay. Support mm-hmm. them. Support yes. them so that the DeSantis of the world can't take them down. Okay. Please, <laughs> please. And thank you. <laughs> Maybe that's a good like kind of action item for everybody since our theme this this month is like books is hit up the library if you haven't Support been Support your logo. I've been telling uh, every so often my um, followers, especially on Twitter, like go support your local library. Like yeah. they really need the funding right now. What's his face? Eric Adams in New York. Like I don't remember the exact headline, but he's really trying to suck the library budget dry. Like that man is a super villain. So I need, I need my homies up there to like rally around the libraries because you know it's one of right. the last few public goods that we have, right. um, in general. Because you know Congress is raiding mm-hmm. Social Security again now. You know, so libraries are kind of like our last state <laughs> as of totally. you know as a public good. Because even you yeah. know even the parks stuff is happening with the parks too. So. I just want people to be plugged in. Um, I don't want what happened with, let's say, pay phones and cell phones to happen with libraries. You know, because when you go right. out now, you can't find no damn pay phone. <laughs> it's not really a thing anymore. It's important for us as a society to have like publicly accessible services and goods. And a library is that. So get a library card, borrow a book, volunteer. I don't care what you got to do. Just help your local library. Oh my goodness, could not agree more. And even thinking about the potential consequences of people no longer having access to books and media in that way, because libraries are so much more than books. They're subscriptions and music and like so much reputable information through libraries is how it's accessible for people. So the idea of that not being accessible, thinking about the intention behind that is so sinister and scary. Yes. Yes, it's very evil. It's very, very evil. It's very diabolical, supervillain behavior. <laughs> um, so I'm like, even if you aren't an avid reader, movie watcher, don't matter. Like, support your local library. Like this, like Truly. you said, the ramifications. You know, if God forbid, libraries just go down. People are talking about, oh, people don't read now. Right. It's gonna be very ugly. Very. <laughs> very ugly. So, yeah, I, I, I know personally, um, you know, when my money is finally right, I'm going to see if I can just personally start donating to, to certain libraries because, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's nice to help them non-monetarily. But at the end of the day, we live in a capitalist society. So if I can get you some money, I'm going to try. <laughs> so. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I love that. Relating back to your book a little bit and kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, just the nature of the memoir genre specifically, you mention inviting us straight into your business, <laughs> which 
<laughs> is not an easy thing to do. How did you prepare to invite us all into your business? And how does it feel to invite a bunch of people, strangers, anywhere into your business in that way? Yeah, it was definitely uncomfortable. Like, there's no reason to lie about that. Um, you know, because people know me for share. Like, I've shared some very personal things online. I don't have no issue with that. Because I'm like, let's see, if you're part of that story, you should have acted better if you didn't want that out there, right? So I don't have issues with that. But it's one of those things, like, those things have obviously been curated. And that's not to say that the book hasn't either, right? Because I, I don't tell all the stories of my life in that one book. But for the stuff I've already shared online, you know, is is definitely stuff that I was already like prepared to talk about versus like the memoir where like, as you saw, there were some other things where I was like, okay, I really have to like gear myself up to even write about this. Um, so definitely nerve wracking because while I've already shared some, you know, personal things online, I'm still extremely private. Like, mm-hmm. you know, people prior to this book, only knew what I told them, you know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So with the book, it's definitely going to be, you know, further than that. Because now I'm telling you things that you just had no idea about, period. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you did know me, like I've had some of my friends call me up like, man, I didn't know all this shit about it. And I'm like, yeah, because I don't be t- <laughs> I don't talk about it like yeah. that. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, def- it's definitely difficult. But, you know, the good thing about a memoir versus like a biography, right, is that, you know, you really can curate a memoir. Yeah. Like you can have yeah. a central, like you mentioned, a central theme. Maybe it's a certain time period, whatever have you. But um, that's probably the the genre of being a memoir is probably what definitely helped me kind of get over the whole telling people my business thing. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think what is so beautiful about that and in the vulnerability of it is just how it gives other people a chance to connect with you and to connect with your story and to see elements of themselves in your story. If they have had their own experiences and thought maybe they were the only ones to go through something and realize, wow, I'm not alone in this and and that ability to connect to it. There's just so much power in that. I agree. That. I agree. I know, um, you know, especially online, there has to be a balance, right? Like, obviously, if you into public shame, I'd be like more power to you. But sometimes people <laughs> don't need to know everything about you, you know, sometimes. But then right. on the flip side of that, so you know, sometimes, like you mentioned, just sharing, you know, maybe that one or two embarrassing story will like help someone else on the other side. Like, oh, someone else also did this awkward ass thing you know and they the world didn't end right so you know then the world doesn't have to end for me i you know like i said i tried to strike that balance because i don't want everybody to know everything but you know something's okay (laughs) totally yeah yeah i completely agree and i think that there's also two part of that balance, or at least something that I think about when I decide, okay, what am I going to share versus not, is I like sharing things after I've had a chance to kind of process it. Yes. Even if I'm not quote unquote over it, because for a lot of things in life, it's like we don't get over these things. We understand, we accept it, you know, we can move forward. But I'm like, okay, I'm comfortable with sharing things when I had a little bit of time to process where maybe I'm not like so deeply in the feel of it yes. where I'm speaking more so from that than what happened and can share a little bit of like the takeaways of like, okay, well, here's what happened and here's what I've learned. That's been kind of my gauge for deciding yeah. what to share. But sometimes, I don't know, 
we just share. Yeah. Sometimes we just be sharing too. Because we, you know, feel compelled or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I got to make a confession that may make you question my wellness girly status. I struggle to drink enough water. It's plain. It's boring. I have to go to the bathroom every five seconds. Plain water is a struggle for me. But if you add element to that water, I'm in there. I'm finishing my water bottle. I'm staying well hydrated. Element is the best electrolyte drink mix on the market. Even if you aren't an intense athlete, you need to be replenishing your electrolytes. They facilitate hundreds of functions in the body from regulating our hormones, helping us absorb nutrients, and staying hydrated at a cellular level. You ever notice how when you drink a bunch of plain water, it kind of goes right through you? Yeah, that's because you aren't actually getting the hydration and electrolytes you need. And when we aren't replenishing electrolytes, that can lead to fatigue, headaches, and muscle cramps. Element has a science-backed ratio of sodium, potassium, and magnesium that has no added sugar and tastes amazing. I love putting a packet of the watermelon or citrus salt in my water. Nothing makes me finish my water bottle faster or the chocolate salt in my coffee. It is so good. When I drink Element, I notice I'm way more hydrated and have more energy throughout the day. Now, right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. So that's eight single serving packets free with any Element order. So you can try all eight Element flavors or share with a friend. Again, my favorite flavors are the citrus and watermelon salt, but they're all so good. Get yours at drinkelement.com slash balanced less. Free samples are only available through my link. You can go to drinklmnt.com slash balanced less to get a free sample pack with your order. And you can try Element risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund you, no questions asked, so you have nothing to lose. Something else that you do really beautifully is that you do tell these stories, even the ones that are hard, with a healthy side of humor. And I want to make sure I emphasize that. How has humor been a source of healing for you? Um, I love humor personally because um, while it is a coping mechanism, right, one of the more popular ones, um, I just think for me personally, it gives me enough space to detach um, from the event, um, Mm -hmm. the story, whatever trauma and kind of give myself a second to really process it. You know, I know it can be annoying to some like, Oh, you, you know, you make a joke out of everything. You know, it can be annoying to some, but for me, you know, it's absolutely required in terms of like beginning the processing aspect of things. Um, It may not be convenient for others, but for me, like, I really need that pause to be like, okay, this is obviously something terrible. Let me laugh about it and then get ready to really think about it. So Mm -hmm. that was kind of my thing. And it's something I wanted to make sure the book adopted as well, because as you mentioned, like this, there's some really dark shit in there. And, you know, for the standard person, they're not going to be ready to read that on like a random, I don't know, Tuesday at 12 p.m. You know, mm-hmm. they're not prepared for that. So by kind of like slipping in some humor there, it kind of softens the really dark edges of whatever is being talked about. So then you can be like, okay, yes, this is a terrible thing I'm reading about, but because I've been eased into it, 
now I can like properly receive it. So that was kind of my goal. Um, Cause you know, it is important to talk about these tough things, but you also have to try to be sensitive um, about some of this stuff. Cause like I'm, for example, there's going to be survivors of the things that I talked about that are reading this book. So I don't mm-hmm. want to just like throw it at them. I want to be like, right. Hey, so this thing is kind of terrible, but you know, let's, let's have a talk first before I tell mm-hmm. you the thing. So mm-hmm. those are what, you know, the kind of the jokes and the clips are for. Yeah, definitely. And it almost feels like the humorous aspects or the humorous tone almost is like a little, like a break to catch your breath and be like, okay, and continue. Yeah. That's exactly that. Yeah. Which sometimes we need just to, as you said, almost help us process things a bit more. And I think sometimes it can make, make that information feel a little bit more accessible as well. I agree. I agree. You know, you can do, you can do a lot with salt, but you can do even more with sugar, you know? So. Exactly. Something else that I appreciate is that a lot of what you talk about has themes talking about healing and the processes of healing that don't feel cheesy. Yeah. Because and I've probably participated in this, like on this very podcast. There, the cheese, or not cheesiness, but healing. I think in some ways, like capital H healing trademark has become a little bit of a commodity, yes. and it, it feels a bit cheesy yes. at times. And I feel like you describe it in a way that feels really real, and mm. more so how it happens in reality as opposed to like we sit and we journal for x minutes and then i burn my sage and then i you know yeah it's more of like processing things in real time yeah is that kind of how by design <laughs> yeah it is you know because um i like i mentioned the book so i have bipolar disorder too i also have adhd mm-hmm. Um, also see PTSD. So like in these past couple of years, in terms yeah. of like processing my own mental state, um, it has required me to, as you mentioned, also process these more tough or traumatic memories or happenings. So I wanted to make sure the book reflected that as well. That like, you know, I know we say healing is not a linear process, but I really mean that shit. Like there'd be times where like I was Gucci, like I thought I had done all the processing I needed to do on a situation and then something else happened that was really similar. And I'm like, you know what? Actually, we got to rewind because I'm not over it. Like you said, I'm not. I'm not. We got to go back and talk about it. So Mm -hmm. um, I wanted that to definitely be present in the book. Because, you know, happened to me in reality as well, where it was like, okay, this thing happened. Now I got to go back in my childhood where it was relevant. Now I got to go back forward. Did it happen in between again? So, you know, I really want to illustrate kind of what, you know, the chaotic nature of healing, actually. I think healing is very chaotic. I feel like, mm-hmm. but I feel like if you said that, people would be like, okay, then why do I need to heal? So then people try to go more violently in the other direction as you said where then it gets very cheesy and very canned a bunch of canned responses but you know healing is chaotic but it's very necessary otherwise you'll just get really stuck in these patterns that don't like serve you or the person that you want to be or Mm -hmm. are aiming to be Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love what you said about sometimes needing to go back because I think those moments 
can feel almost frustrating where you're yes. like, oh, I thought I was over this. I thought that I got through this. Like, why am I still upset about this? Or why am I like feeling triggered by this event? And I just really appreciate that you openly discuss that because it is something that is so human and is so natural to experience and is not an indication that you know, we're not on our way or that we're not becoming who we want to be at all. It's just an indication that we're still human. Right. Right. All works in progress. If you're not, I don't remember who said the quote, so don't kill me, but it's a great quote I read a couple of years ago. And it's one of those things where like, you know, to be human is to be very dynamic, right? You know, if you're not learning something or improving on something at any point mm-hmm. in your journey, then you just like, what are you doing? Like you've just stopped. Right progressing as a human which is so weird you know because you're, you're it's supposed to be a constant thing constant thing you know maybe it gets tiring but you know you always want to be improving yourself and that looks different for everybody that's why the act of just not improving is weird to me because it's it's so many <laughs> things you can do maybe i don't know you didn't know how to fix lamps last year now you know how to fix lamps like there's so many things you can do to improve yourself right quotations as a human being yeah so actively choosing to not do that i feel like says a lot right or actively choosing to not learn from experiences you've had or even things that you've seen other people do because you can also learn a lot from other people's yes experiences too absolutely right right and you are 27? You're in your late 20s still. So right? I'm 28, yeah. I'll be 29 28. this year. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Late 20s. That's a yeah. late 20s is a time. It's a time. Very <laughs> it's very interesting time. Very interesting time. You're in like this weird limbo before, right. you know, the big 3 0, you know, that people just cry about. It's weird. Oh my God, I'm turning 30. And I'm like, okay, well, my 20s were terrible. So bring it on. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like, you know, 30 sounds much more adult, I guess, than 26, 27. So I think that's why people freak out. They're like, oh my God, I'm mm-hmm. an adult for real. But I'm like, you know, I, I've been feeling a very, you know, like one since I left home. Now, mm-hmm. obviously the varying uh, degrees of adulthood have fluctuated because, you know, I'm still growing and learning. But it's one mm-hmm. of those things like, once you get pushed out that little nest, little quotations bird nest of, you know, your parents or whatever, if you have them or whatever, I feel like, you know, your life changes dramatically anyway. So me getting to 30 is actually a little less shocking <laughs> than when I left, you know, when I left my parents home. But that's just me. I can't speak for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's I appreciate that insight, though. It. Your 20s are just such this weird decade because it's a time where you experience so many things for the first time. And so it's like, oh, hold up, wait a minute. Like everything just feels like so chaotic because for a lot of it, it's the first time it happens. And then I think our society has put a lot of pressure on the age of 30 of like, you have to have all these things figured out by the age of 30, which actually makes no sense. It makes no sense when we logically think about it, but- it's that's so the opposite of what we're told. So there's all this pressure around it. Yes. And we get there and we're like, oh, I'm still the same person. I'm right. still working through the same things. <laughs> still here. Learned a little bit more, but we're still here. But it's it's interesting. I feel like I've just had a lot of people in my life who are in their 20s and have that, I call it like the 20s anxiety. Yeah. 
and it's been like put on my heart to help them calm down a little bit. Right. A light, um, you know, you're not going to die. Thing. You're not going to die when you hit big 3 You're not. No, not going to die. It's, it feels like it, 20s, right? you know, right. Like you mentioned, like the little propaganda around it, you know, it's a lot, but you know, it's okay. We're going to be okay. <laughs> All going to be okay. Yeah. And I think there's also a lot of pressure too, particularly in your 20s around like, well, what am I doing with my life? Well, I'm not here yet. I'm not there yet. And it's like, nobody knows what they're doing with their life. Nobody does just one thing with their life. It's a lie. More propaganda. (laughs) It's a big lie. You know, people are constantly, you know, because if we're talking about dynamic humans, right, you know, constantly reinventing ourselves. Like I could be a carpenter all my life, like Harrison Ford, and then decide at like 42 that I want to act now. You know, it happens mm-hmm. just like that. And it's so quick. Samuel Jackson is another example. He didn't start acting till late too. So there's no age limit on life changing direction in your life. Exactly. So in the book, you mention feeling like it was your destiny to be simultaneously invisible and hypervisible. And that line like really was very striking, Mm -hmm. very, very striking. And something that I think could be really relatable for a lot of Black women, our audience, um, obviously, balanced Black girl primarily (laughs) listens. Can we talk about that? Can we talk about what it means to kind of exist at that kind of dynamic intersection and it's very tough because, you know, it's 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 a mind fuck because you're just like, mm-hmm. oh, people see me, but not really. Like, that's yeah. the whole thing. They're only seeing what they want to see eh, or they're yeah. seeing what they have projected onto me. And that was the big problem because one of those things were like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm rendered invis- invisible when it's convenient to people. Right. No matter who the person, it, 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 yeah. you know, it could be another black person. I'm rendered invisible when it's convenient to them. Yeah. When they don't want to engage me on a personal level um, or a human to human level, right? And then when it's time to capitalize in whatever way, whether it's like mm-hmm. cultural, social capital, proximity, doesn't matter. And when it's time to yeah. capitalize on me, now I am not even just regular visible. I'm hyper visible, you know. Mm-hmm. Now I'm giving all the attention, quotations, but it's not the right kind of attention because at that mm-hmm. point I'm being exploited. Now, for the reason, the reason for expectation is going to vary from, again, depending on that person. But, you know, it's all the same. It's all the same, just different flavors. So that's kind of what I was talking about. I was just like, you know, nobody really cares until they do, but it's going to be for the wrong reason um, because of who I am. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. not fair to me, right? But it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It makes you think a lot about exploitation and about, as you mentioned, kind of the attention that people pay when it's convenient to them. Sometimes the things that people want us to do, it makes me think like, who's benefiting from this? Exactly. Because usually if I'm being pushed, it's never us. It's usually not in our best interest. Nope. Not at all. But they expect us to be okay with it. And that's the part that pisses Mm -hmm. me off. That's where I get mad. Mm -hmm. I'm like, it's one thing for you to be doing the thing, right? But- you're, if you're expecting me to be grateful for the thing, now we have to go outside because now we have to fight. <laughs> That's the only way this is going to get started. <laughs> we just got to physically. Right. Fight. Yeah. Yeah. Why would I be grateful for exploitation? Yes. Essentially. 
it just doesn't make sense. It don't make no sense. It don't. It does not. Yeah. yeah. And it's one of those things too, you know you just you just know that the person on the other side would never be able to handle that same treatment. But they're expecting you to just, you know, hold your head up high, be very mm-hmm. dignified at the fact that you're being exploited. Like, it's crazy. I'm like, do y'all hear y'all Okay. Literally. Literally. Yeah. Was there an initial experience you had where you first came to that realization or where that was initially highlighted for you? I mean, probably early, you know, on in school. You know, I, I briefly touch on some of those school dynamics in a chapter about high school and then I go to college, right? But in school is one of those things where like, you know, by virtue of being in high school, right, everybody wants to be hot. Like, I don't think people should lie about that. I feel like when people, oh, yeah, I was in high school and I wasn't worried about, stop lying. We're all horny, te- <laughs> we're all horny teenagers in high school <laughs> with emotional regulation issues because of puberty you wanted right. to be hot. That is okay. You're not right. taking anything away from yourself by saying that. I was like, I'm truthful, mm-hmm. but I want to be hot. I want to be a hot girl before there were hot girls, right? So it's one of those things where, like, I was denied that aspect of my being. I wasn't really seen like that, right? But when it was time to help somebody with homework or, you know, help someone with this or that, then, again, I became visible. Mm-hmm. But, like, yeah. when it came to that other aspect of, you know, uh, personhood, sexuality, doesn't matter. Whatever whatever verbiage applies in that way, I was denied that. Like, again, mm. for whoever's convenience, that part of me did not exist. But if it was to help somebody, cater to somebody, get someone out of quick bind, then, you know, suddenly I'm here. Suddenly I'm available. For a long time, mm-hmm. too, that's why I kind of didn't like being called helpful because I was just like... Mm. Don't even call me dad. Cause then that just makes me not want to help you. Like, don't even, mm. don't do that. Just, mm-hmm. no, I hated that. Cause it was like, mm-hmm. like spitting different, like, it's like a, like spitting distance away from like, you know, that, that mammy caricature mm-hmm. to me personally. Cause yeah. it's just, mm-hmm. cause especially yeah. depending yeah. on the type of health that was being doled out too. So yeah, mm-hmm. that was kind of what I experienced early in high school. Later, obviously that, evolves, but that was probably my earliest experiences with it. Yeah. I think that totally makes sense and appreciate you sharing that example because I think that's an example that a lot of people can see themselves in and relate to. And even what you just mentioned about not wanting to be called helpful, I think is is really important. I almost think of that as the same as like not wanting to be called strong. It's a different different side of the same coin because it's like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Because when I hear people say that, that just means, okay, we're just going to load up everything on this person because right. this is what we expect them to do versus an actual quality or something that that person has even consented to or wanted to be. Exactly. Exactly. That's it. All of these things, I'm like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, just, I don't know, people can wear you sometimes. Like, even if, you know, right, being helpful, right, is in your nature, yeah. people exploiting it just enough will make you be like, I'm going to go in the complete opposite direction. I'm about to be the most unhelpful person that you know now because I'm sick of this. I'm sick. You know, now that I'm older, I try not to, like, go into that opposite direction, you know, but yeah. if I start to get fatigued, I will just, I'll leave. I will just withdraw because I'm like, I'm not going to let you ruin this part of myself for me. Because, mm-hmm. like, if I stick around here, I'm definitely going to be resentful of you, me, whoever else. So I need to go. But, exactly. yeah, people people really can, like, 
push enough buttons for you to be like, I know this is part of my character, but I don't even want mm-hmm. this to be part of my character anymore because people piss me off. So yep. that's always a danger too. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I, that's an absolute danger. And another thing or another way that I think that can manifest is it almost kind of trains people to be people pleasers, trains us to be people pleasers, where we think we have to constantly be earning bare minimum respect, love, kindness from others, that that always has to be an exchange for us doing something. Yep. And that's a slippery slope too. Yes, it is. So one of the other elements that I would also love to talk about is that you write a lot about your body. You write Mm -hmm. a lot about your weight experience with major injury, how that impacted you physically, mentally, emotionally. So I would love to just talk a little bit more about your relationship with your body and how that's evolved over time. It's very tumultuous. I think it's just going to be that way until I get put back in the ground, honestly. Like, I'm not even going to lie about that. You know, because combination with, like I mentioned in the book, societal messaging, but also my upbringing made it so that like, I was destined to really have just a fucked up relationship with it. It's gotten better over the years because I've been able to suss out my own voice amongst the chaos Mm -hmm. or the voice of, you know, my parents or the voice of, you know, again, society um, and making sure that those don't cross, you know, you know, because they can say whatever society can say whatever, but at the end of the day, it comes down to me and my body. Like, how do we feel about each other? The way I write the book, I try to make it clear that, you know, I am my own entity, right? I guess spiritual, you know, if you believe that spiritually, right? But then my body is his own thing. You know, mm-hmm. my body is his own thing. Um, I can have all the awesome spirit in the world. I can be spunky, whatever. But if my body is like, bitch, fuck you, then that's it. You know, <laughs> she has the final say because, you know, she the vehicle. Right. So, yeah, my initial relationship with her was not great. Um, now that I've been able to reflect and like I mentioned, you know, I've been in therapy. I've done some reading and been able to pinpoint some of the earlier life issues that kind of follow me to the present. I think, you know, I have a much better relationship with her. I always try to remind myself that, you know, she do her best as am I. So, mm-hmm. you know. Obviously, if I'm struggling, then I should look into that. But let's say taking it out of my body, right, is not the best course of action either. Things are better. They're not perfect because, you know, sometimes I, let's say, sometimes I regress on my own progress, right? Uh, I think I try to be truthful about that, you know, because I do subscribe to, like, fat liberation politics. But, you know, I'm not going to feel happy all the time about me and my body because like I said Mm -hmm. I still have to wake up every day and combat societal messaging like you know it's cool when I'm inside my house when I'm asleep Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about that when I go out to the world I'm gonna encounter people who you know who who feel the opposite about me and my body Mm-hmm. even though it's not their business. So right. it's one of those things where like, I have to be able to process that and not internalize it, which is where mm-hmm. sometimes a lot of us get stuck. That's what I would say, you know. But yeah, she do her best. She do her best. So I try yeah. to respect that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for just your honesty and sharing. I think sometimes with 
that question, it can be easy for people to be like, well, everything is great now. And I, my body is my temple that I love every day. And that's just not always the reality of how we always feel. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's okay to say that you mentioned just now kind of the difference between internalizing things and processing them. What are some practices that help you do that? If we have folks who are maybe kind of going through the same thing. Yeah. I literally straight up, like if I have the thought, I ask myself, where's that coming from? So Mm -hmm. like in the book, like I mentioned this, like I had thought some really dark thought about my body and then like me and like my paramour at the time, like pause and was like, where is that coming from? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, upon thinking about it, I was like, okay, this is something that was said to me in my childhood home. Now, if Mm -hmm. I have the wherewithal to kind of push, maybe I can identify the person who said it right back, back in my mind. But the point is like to identify where it's coming from. Now that's going to be tough because, you know, you need to feel the feeling first. I think people try to skip over that. And I'm like, no, because if you don't feel the feeling first, when you think about it later, then you're going to have to feel the feeling. And then you're going to be mad about it because you thought you processed it, but you hadn't because you skipped over step number one, right? So you have mm-hmm. to feel the feeling first. But once you get, you know, once you not get over it, but once you like get through the feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then you could be like, okay, what is the source of this yeah. thing? You know, that's how I've navigated that particular issue to ensure mm-hmm. that I'm not internalizing it. Because mm-hmm. when I internalize it now I'm attributing whatever that thought or terrible thing was to me personally. Now I'm mm-hmm. acting as if I'm the one who said the thing, right? Or I'm the one who did the mm-hmm. thing and that's not what happened. It was mm-hmm. done to me. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. said to me. So once you're able to like properly separate that, then you'll be like, oh, I do that. You know, you're like, oh, that's not, that was not mm-hmm. me. So then you can really be like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. that person was on some BS. It's not me. So then you yeah. can be like, that's one like memory or terrible thought or whatever it is that you don't have to carry because it's not yours, period. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. That distinction is so important of whose voice is this? And if it's not mine, I don't need to carry it. And I also don't need to bend my voice to then take this, take these words as their own because yes. it's not. Exactly. Yeah. I also really appreciated what you said about just that we almost have this expectation of ourselves to have like our individual self self esteem if we want to call it that way be able to hold a match to these very intentional systems that don't always make just existing in our bodies the way they are as simple as it should be yes and no one of us individually is any match for that it's no. systems that have to be dismantled yes absolutely Absolutely. Yeah. I, self, self-esteem is just the verbiage is so fun, funny to me. Cause one of those things like, yeah, you can build all of that up, you know, which you should, you should gas yourself. You know, you need to in the society. Right. But mm-hmm. you know, you're dealing with some very powerful and very old people forget these systems are old, man. Like this mm-hmm. stuff was in place before I was even in somebody's nutsack. Okay. Like, <laughs> Like, they're old. So, you know, people got to keep that in mind, too. Like, when they feel bad about, like, oh, why is this, I don't know, why is this symptom of this system, whether it's maybe you encounter some microaggression or something happens to you, right? Like, Mm -hmm. don't 
be too hard on yourself. It's very easy to be like, oh, I should have reacted this way, that way, whatever. You know, you don't go out every day and be like, I'm going to encounter this racism. You know, you don't go out expecting that every day. Like, you know, yes, in the back of your mind, that is a possibility. But actually being like, I was minding my black ass business and then this thing happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a separate thing, right? So we got to remember that these are old systems. And it is okay sometimes if you feel overwhelmed by them um you don't want to stay there because once you stay there then it gets hard to get up you know you know these are older systems and you're not there's nothing wrong with you if you know temporarily you you know you get emotionally injured by having to deal with Mm -hmm. them right so Mm -hmm. um but like you said you know by like solo doing it solo though is going to be tougher than if you have like access to like greater community and then y'all could commiserate together about these awful yes. systems that, yes, yes. need to be dismantled. I completely agree. Completely agree. And that that really gets into the importance of community. And I think also, too, being able to check one another for all of the biases that we all have and yeah. being able to hold one another and ourselves accountable. So before we wrap up, I wanted to go one more, go into one more area. Something that I really appreciate about your work is just the thoughtfulness in how you critique culture. And representation is a term and a word that we hear thrown around a lot, but there's a lot of opportunity to dig deeper into what we mean when we say representation. Mm -hmm. So with that, I would love to talk about the Kent test. Mm -hmm. The Kent test, the litmus test that takes a look at thoughtful representation in media. So can you tell us more about the inspiration behind it and how you created it? Yes. Thank you for asking. So um, I well, I was joking. I, it was like halfway joking, halfway not. But there was like <laughs> a tweet a couple of days ago that was like, you know, underrated actors. And I remember throwing up there, I was like, Nicole Bahari, like I'm so tired. Mm. People paying her dust, like it upsets right. me, right? Because she's beautiful, she's charming, but she can still act. You know, mm-hmm. I'm gonna make some people upset, but like in our current roster of actors among my age group, it's not as good as it could be. <laughs> like a lot of these people <laughs> are pretty, right? Quotations objectively, but like I'm like, but where is the acting? Where's yeah. where's the skill? Where's right. the charisma? I don't believe none of y'all in y'all roles. You know, so so for me, <laughs> you know, Nicole, she's great, right? So she, I don't think she's properly gotten her due yet. Part of that had something to do with Sleepy Hollow, right? The way that mm-hmm. they did my girl, like it was given human rights violation. Like that's how like flagrant <laughs> her mistreatment was. Like I felt very strongly. Mm-hmm. So basically at the time that was happening and the period that I was in my life and observing what was on TV, like what we were expected to just kind of have and deal with, all of that anger got, you know, synthesized into the test. I was like, you know, it's cool being mad. I like being mad sometimes. Sometimes you got to get mad so you can do something. So yeah. I like being mad sometimes because I'm like, that's the only way this thing will get done. Because sometimes when you're calm with people, they still, they like to play your face. But when mm-hmm. you start turning up, then people want to move. 
Yeah. Is there a technically better way to do it? Sometimes, yes. But, so you know, sometimes, again. It's effective. Right. <laughs> hard, you know. Sometimes people don't hear. And they don't want to mm-hmm. hear you until you start yelling. So, <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's what happened with the test. I got mad. And I was like, okay, let me do something. So, I had worked in conjunction with Claudia for her. Which is not defunct. But I worked in conjunction with them. Um, and I started coming up with the representation guide. Which there are some remnants of it. Um, on the internet, but basically the test is the remaining portion, right? I was like, it's nice and fun to come up with verbiage to like describe what's going on. But if people have like essentially like a checklist they can move through, it makes it easier for them to be like, oh, okay. So if I keep comparing certain media on this checklist and I keep seeing the same recurring issue and over and over again, now I can see clearly what's going on. So basically, mm-hmm. I wanted to create the thing so people could see that stuff in real time and be able to have that language, have that verbiage, and explain the problem in detail now because you have that verbiage, you have that checklist. And then, you know, I also wanted to show like general populace too when it comes to media that if you brush away all the biases that I'm discussing in the test, right, at the mm-hmm. end of the day, we're identifying an issue where people really can't write. They think they can write, but they cannot. Because if they were coming up with, in the very least, right, three-dimensional characters, right, mm-hmm. a lot of the pitfalls that I talk about in the test would be avoided. Now, you know, obviously, especially if you're a non-Black person, you still going to have some biases. That's just period. Mm-hmm. And you, you you can still be a Black person with biases against Black people, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. some yeah. of that definitely will still come through. But once again, if you were doing some three-dimensional writing, then it would be easier to kind of avoid at least the more obvious biases. Um, so yeah. the fact that biases just be coming in all over the place should tell y'all that motherfuckers don't know how to write. <laughs> <laughs> they do not. So that was kind of like the whole thing behind the test. So it's been interesting to see how it's received, how it's been used. You know, I've gotten um, calls and emails from like students, um, also professors, um, also people in my field. So it's been cool hearing um, the feedback and also being part of the feedback and having to kind of deal with that in real time, too. Because I remember talking about the test in like when I was doing Twitter spaces before Mm -hmm. the rat man took over. Right. (laughs) I was in a Witcher. Um, Elon. Yeah. I was in a space for the Witcher and me and my colleagues in the space, we had an interesting discussion because we were Mm -hmm. talking about the, one of the last rules that asks for different female characters of color to talk. Mm-hmm. or at least to interact that's the verbiage i use interact initially right so mm-hmm. something interesting in that i think the first season of witcher happens where like there are you know non-white and black characters in one scene mm-hmm. and technically there's interaction but not with each other that was the mm-hmm. that was the kicker it was one of the things mm-hmm. where i was like oh so I have to clarify this. I was like, no, yeah. they have to talk to each other. Like you can't, yeah. you can't, there, there can't be no, I guess, nonverbal. Like that's not going to be acceptable because that's also very subjective. Maybe some person think that they saw them, I don't know, give each other a look. And maybe the other person is like, I didn't see that. So I was like, I had to go back and be like, okay, so they need to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. 
period. Like they need to talk to each other. And you know, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been able to go back and make that addendum if I also wasn't in dialogue with people. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's good to put out the test, but you also have to be talking to people about this or any type of like media phenomenon. Um, because none of this changes if people aren't, you know, on all sides communicating about these issues, whether you're in front of a camera, behind a camera, whether it's me and you talking on this podcast right now, or someone on, you know, someone on Twitter, Tumblr, doesn't matter. Like, we all got to be constantly in communication about stuff like this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the conversation is often where, like, the rubber kind of meets the road. Yes, because it's nice to have, it, you know, theory, but, you know, yeah. practice. Like, what is actually practi- practical, excuse me. Right. Yeah. And talking to one another to be like, okay, are you seeing, here's what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? And gaining that perspective is also really important because sometimes in media, things can be consumed so differently. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love getting to hear a little bit more just about your thoughts behind it and the origin of it. I really love the questions and I think that they're really great for just helping us think a little bit more and a little bit deeper about what it is that we're seeing and how what we're seeing shapes what we think. And so we link the test in the show notes so that people can check it out because I really enjoyed the questions that it asked us to ponder. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I tried to kind of not cover everything because you no one cannot cover everything, but you know, just yeah. common things that I saw, like right. why you know why do we always have to be these weird background characters for these other people? Like I was like, y'all are not the main characters you think you are. So let's talk about that. You know, so it's one of those Literally. things where I really wanted to get into it. Like this is how you view us in real life, right? So mm-hmm. this is why it is now translating to your fictional universe, and this is why I don't like that shit. <laughs> You know exactly so, why it's false, <laughs> right? Like we're not the background characters to your life. Like you need to go somewhere we're dead. Exactly, exactly. And tying back to kind of what we've talked about this this whole time, and why I was really excited to talk to authors this month is why it's also so important for us to be sharing our stories, yeah, using our voices so that. If the only stories we're seeing and hearing are ones where we're these weird side characters, that's not. It's it, not good. It's not good for our collective everybody. psyche. Like I hate. Right. I really hate the whole. And I talk about this in the book. I hate the whole representation matters thing because it's been bastardized. Obviously, right? Yes. But you know, when you think about where people are getting their cultural competency from. It is from yeah. these TV shows. It is from these mm-hmm. movies. You know, I think being an American is very interesting for a lot of reasons that people on this podcast are very aware of, you know, politically, mm-hmm. culturally, doesn't matter, right? But one of the things yeah. that I always find interesting is that, you know, we are populists that believe that we're not easily influenceable. And I'm like, that could not be more <laughs> untrue. <laughs> yeah. So, very. Um, yes, that's what I think about when I think about TV and movies and stuff. I was like, even if you're not like consciously thinking these things, like you're still, yeah. you know, even unconsciously, it's still seeping yeah. through, right? I'll give y'all an example. So, 
a couple months ago, I was watching Abbott Elementary with my sister, right? And about twice during, I think two or three times during that show, and then like a second show that we watched afterwards, right? A piece of commercial came on. I don't remember who it was, like the actual brand, but a piece of commercial came on. And then it came on again, and then again. Mm -hmm. So at least three times in the like Mm -hmm. two or three hours we were sitting there. Didn't think nothing about it. Because you know me, I don't like commercials. I'll mute mute it, and then I'll go do what I'm supposed to be doing. But then, hours later, hours later, I think it was like midnight or something, or 1 a.m., I looked at my sister and I was like, I want some pizza. (laughs) <laughs> like again i didn't actually sit and watch these you know because i whenever the commercial came on i was either on my phone or i got up and i walked away you know i was gone i didn't sit there yeah. and be like oh so yeah. so so we we have this We're 1999 deal happening right now with yeah. some chicken wings i didn't even actually watch it but it was enough mm-hmm. that i was exposed to it and then mm-hmm. later i'm thinking this is a completely unique thought and no the whole day I was bombarded with pizza ads, you know? So it could be something as simple as that, or it could be even more complex, but that just kind of goes to show what the media is like in this country, like how it functions. Um, you know, it seems completely innocuous because I'm talking about pizza, but then if I were to talk about, for example, what happened here in Virginia with Glenn Youngkin, I have to give his team credit. I hate him and I want him to go to hell. But I have to give his team credit in the fact that their media campaign was relentless. When I mm-hmm. asked people later after the like the election had come and gone, right? Like if they knew who the other candidate was who ran, they couldn't even tell me. Even if they didn't like mm-hmm. Glenn, they're like, I don't even know who ran, who was on the other side. Powerful. That's how that's how media, that's how media will get you. Like you know, yeah. he is going to hell, but he his media campaign was very strong, very competent, mm-hmm. very calculated. Mm-hmm. So he got his name yeah. out there. I didn't know who the hell Glenn yeah. Youngkin was two, three years ago. I do now. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, that's why, like, as much, you know, it's annoying to hear representation matters, this and that. With how propaganda is, you know, passed around this country, you have to be critical of the media that you're consuming. It can be exhausting because sometimes you just want to detach. But in this particular country, I don't think it's possible because of just Mm. the machinations that are happening in the background, whether you're aware of them or not. Yeah, that's such a good point. And even with those examples, they show how even if we're not even consciously thinking that we're paying attention or we're not even interested or we don't even like this candidate, we don't even agree with them, but it still is so relentless and persuasive. Exactly. That it it makes that ability to critique really, really important. We have to be like hard to manipulate. Yes. Yeah, exactly. For survival. <laughs> constantly, your head needs to, like, when it comes to media, constantly on a swivel. Listen, I still watch, for example, some of these Tarantino movies. I enjoy them. But at the end mm-hmm. of the day, I'd be asking myself, why does this director feel so comfortable just putting the N word everywhere up in his stuff? Mm-hmm. Who's, who gave yeah. the green light? To, it's not okay. It's not okay. Right. But some people will consume it and be like, well, you know, it's just, it's just, it's whatever. It's just fiction or whatever. I'm like, okay, yes. And I am still critical of who brought mm-hmm. this fiction to my screen, <laughs> you know? 
Yeah. Like, why do you feel comfortable writing about this? It doesn't matter that other people are saying it, right? You can, exactly. this is something you took out of your own brain, your white ass brain, right? <laughs> you know, you make your black people say it on the screen is neither here nor there to me because it came out of your brain. Right. So, exactly. you know, I encourage all people, doesn't matter, you know, even if, again, even if you don't have the technical language, yep. really think about what you're consuming. Like if, you, if mm-hmm. in your soul, in your mind, you're like, this don't feel right. This feels fucked up. Mm-hmm. Then follow mm-hmm. that because you are the yep. money, even if, again, you don't have the language yet. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Even just saying this don't feel right. Like that's all you need. All you need to know that something's off or to continue asking questions. Yes. Like, what about this is weird? You know, that's enough. Like, you are already, like, on the right, like, path mm-hmm. when you're like, mm, I, I watched it. I didn't like that. Why? You know, and then yeah. you start, like you said, asking those follow-up questions. And then you can be like, oh, well, you didn't like this thing because it was misogynistic or it was racist or, you know, whatever. Yep. Exactly. And it's so important because we – are just exposed to so much media and content in a day that if we just absorb all of it without question, I mean, Lord only knows how our psyches are Listen, truly being able we learned We learned a hard lesson with a lot of these past elections, especially where social media is concerned. But that's like an yes. entirely different <laughs> – that would be right. – we'd have to have like another episode oh, to yeah. talk about that. I would love to have another episode to talk about that if you're interested. I think that could. Oh, I would love to too. You know, I would love to. It's, it's. You know, I don't want to be that old person talking about get off my lawn or whatever. But like, in terms of technological advancements, I think social media is one that I personally would have been like, I would have went back in time and been like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) Just don't do it. Don't. You know, society. You know, we don't need it. We don't need it. We don't need it. But, you know, some people disagree, but I just feel like um, just the, the brand of narcissism that it brings out of people is very dark-sided for, for better and for worse, too. So that's that's all I will say, because like I said, we need a whole other episode. <laughs> I would love to do a part two and dive deeper, deeper into that yeah. for sure. Oh, my goodness. I loved this conversation. Thank you so, so much for joining me today and for celebrating the launch of your book with us. And we have linked Fat On, Fat Off in the show notes so that you all can go get it today and read it. It is such a beautiful, honest read. And I just appreciate you sharing with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for reading it. Um, And I really, really enjoyed being on here questions were very thoughtful and I always appreciate that because you know when you're um doing these book tours sometimes they get a little you know a little monotonous a little repetitive yeah. right and there's not nothing technically imagine. wrong with that but you know when you get those thoughtful questions you're like oh I hadn't thought about that let me think about it you know <laughs> think about it. so it always makes the interviews really fun Oh, good. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. And I'm just so happy to have gotten the chance to talk to you and really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me again. 
that is all we have for you today. Make sure you add fat off, fat on to your TBR list and make sure you check out the Kent test. We can all benefit from stronger media literacy skills and it is a great resource. Huge thanks to Clarkisha for joining me on the show today. I loved this conversation. Head to the show notes to get your copy of Fat Off, Fat On, to visit the Kent Test, and to check out the discount codes and offers from our sponsors. We have some really dope sponsors this month, like Element, Aloe Moves, ZocDoc, and they're all hooking you up when you use our links and codes. So head to the show notes to grab those. Thank you so much for tuning in today and make sure you come back next week. I'm joined by my friend Chrissy King. She's coming back to the show to talk about her new book, The Body Liberation Project. We have a great conversation about the difference between body liberation and body positivity and how we can all feel more at home in our bodies. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss it and I'll see you next week.